I think we can go home now. Now we got a lot of good music about to happen too, so we don't want to leave too soon. I'm just going to share a few quick thoughts with you all about this idea of astonishment and um, just, why the, just why the resurrection, for me at least, for me, why the resurrection, among so many other things, speaks to this idea of astonishment. I want to start off with one of my favorite stories. Some of you know it. I've got a lot of folks in here who probably don't know it. I'm going to say it. Uh, tell it to you again. It just perfectly, I think, sets it up for what we're talking about. Um, so these, this, these two kids, a young, uh, young girl and a young boy, uh, Jimmy and uh, Mary, they, they probably were, were eight, nine, ten years old, and they were both sitting in the pastor's office. And so uh, they were sitting there, and the, pa- but the pastor called in Jimmy by himself and left Mary sitting out there in this little waiting area. And Jimmy sheepishly walked into, the, uh, into his office and started listening, and he just stared at Jimmy for a minute, just stared, kind of scowled at him a little bit, like he's, li- like he's letting him sit there and stew in his anxiety or something. And finally, he looked at Jimmy, and he said, Jimmy, can you tell me where God is? And Jimmy looked at him blank. He just kind of looked up, and he he kind of wasn't sure what to say. And so again, the pastor said, Jimmy, can you tell me where God is? And now Jimmy was starting to look even a little more scared, a little more anxious, like he didn't know what the right answer was going to be until the pastor finally said, Jimmy, tell me where God is. And at that point, Jimmy jumped up, and he ran out of the pastor's office. He ran through the waiting room. Mary saw him running through in a panic. She jumped up and started following him out the door, and they went running down the sidewalk. Jimmy's house was not too much further down the way, and so they ran into Jimmy's house first, Jimmy heading up to his bedroom, and then Mary following suit until they both ducked into the closet and slammed the door, panting as fast as they could. Finally, Mary said, Jimmy, what happened? And Jimmy looked over at Mary and says, I don't know. God is missing and they think we did it. (laughs) So um, I want to put up this first quote here by Kurt Vonnegut. Many of you know the author, Kurt Vonnegut. I practice a disorganized religion, an unholy disorder, and we call ourselves Our Lady of Perpetual Astonishment. This is to me what the invitation is about Easter. It's really this invitation to experience the empty tomb and in a way in astonishment. Now that's, that's a little strange because I think most of us think of the empty tomb as the problem And then we think of the risen Christ as sort of the answer. What I want to suggest to you is we can't experience what risen means until we experience the gift of the empty tomb. Hang on to that idea because I think that's where astonishment really happens. See, here's the thing. When we talk about resurrection, we automatically come to the table with all sorts of ideas. We enter the room with all sorts of ideas. Some of you who know 1111 have experienced 1111. You come in here with a certain sort of expectation for Easter and what it might mean. Some of you who are online, you're watching, you know, 1111. But then we have visitors and we have other folks coming in, maybe family members, and not quite so sure what's going on. And so there's this kind of, we bring these things with us as we come into the room. We bring these... We can call them biases if you like. I call it preconditioning. We bring in all this conditioning from our lives or perhaps from our own experiences. What was going on at the, at the time of the, of the early church, the early community, was a lot of what's going on now. You had this early community scattered after Jesus' death, and then you didn't have the first stories written down for another 20 years. And so the first stories were just circulating around in small communities. 
And because there was a lot of persecution, a lot of tension, even before the temple fell, people stayed in small communities. They shared their stories. But you know what they did the most? You know what they did the most? They acted like Jesus. They acted like Jesus to each other. You know, they were caring for one another. They were giving from their own uh, means to one another. They were helping meet each other's needs. They were being community. They were literally living out that idea of the Beatitudes, right? They were living out that golden rule that Jesus said, all of the rest of the commandments rest on this one thing, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. This This is found in all traditions around the world. They were practicing these things. And then, of course, then Jerusalem fell, and then it was chaos, and we had groups scattering. But already in the first century, late first century, early second century, you had groups starting to debate. Well, was, I mean, even if you read the Gospel of Luke, and, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Luke, and you compare it, compare it to the Gospel of Matthew, and then the Gospel of Mark, you get different expectations different interpretations about who the risen Jesus was. And then if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is the famous one, we preach Christ crucified and risen. That's sort of like the doctrine of the earliest Christian church, sort of the earliest creed. Even if you look at that, when you look at chapter 15 where Paul is saying that, and keep in mind 1 Corinthians was written like 10 years, maybe 15 years, if that, after Jesus' death. It was early, early, early before the Gospels. So Paul is already mentioning something about this resurrection being about the spirit and not physical. But then you go to Luke, who was written after that, and Luke says physical. So you got all these different opinions, all these different ideas. And if you really start thinking about it, you start looking at it and you start realizing, wait a minute, everybody's clinging to their definition. You end up with two different branches of Christianity. You got Paul's branch, which tends to be Gentiles, because the Gentiles didn't want to do circumcision. That was a main sort of turnoff. But there were all sorts of other issues that were part of the Hebrew faith that they didn't want to participate in. And the Jewish community, which were following Jesus, expected the Gentiles, if you're coming on board, you got to be like us. You can see how things were not that different than they are today. And then you come up with this mystical text like so many of these contemplative texts. It doesn't give you an answer, right? It gives you a paradox. And it says somewhere in the midst of that paradox is more truth. But you can't get there by clinging to your definition, bringing it to this meeting, and saying to this person, sorry, you don't think like this. So I'm I'm not here. (laughs) I'm moving on. You're not welcome. You don't match up to my expectation. Your sexual orientation doesn't meet my expectation. Your orientation to faith doesn't, or lack of, or, or disbelief doesn't meet my expectation. You see what I'm saying? There's something that's in between the paradox. That's where the empty tomb says, empty yourself, make room for the sacred. We can't experience resurrection until we empty ourselves. So, uh, let's bring up this next image here that I want to share with you. Oh, yeah. Now, my wife's here, Linda's here, and uh, one of the associates, for those of you who don't know, she, what? That's not you, no, that's not. That's not exactly what I meant, though, right? My wife says, put a monkey up there and people will laugh. You just laugh at the monkey. So, here's the question is the monkey scared? Is the monkey excited? 
Like if I put a lion over here and it's in the bigger picture now that you've stepped back and you see there's a lion, you think, all right, maybe it's scared. But if I back up and there's no lion but there's other monkeys kind of playing around, you think, well, maybe this monkey wants to join in the fun. You see the context that we bring to something changes how we perceive something. And here's the other side of that. When there is no context, we really don't know. And that's the challenge. How often we come to a place of meeting with someone else with the answers. And as soon as we do that, we've shut down what's possible in that empty space, that sacred space between. So I, I, I wanted to use this astonished monkey because I want to talk about this idea of astonishment. And so to go to this next one here, oh, here's something that's a little more expressive. You know why we understand what that's about? We understand that feeling because they're touching, they're smiling, they're blowing bubbles, they're in relationship. It seems like there's a vulnerability, a shared experience there. It's just good to see. So, next slide. If you look up the word astonish, it actually has this literal meaning of being thunderstruck. But that is a little vague to us. So I went digging in the etymology like I like to do. And if you look at the P, that's actually cap, that's not actually pie as in edible pie. That's actually Proto-Indo-European root. So it's P-I-E. And, it, and if you look at, it, at the word astonish, the A comes from the root X, which means out from. And the tene or thunder is what's part of the thunder. That's the root for thunder or to resound. And if you explore it, what you're actually thought, talking about is waking yourself up. Thunder comes out of nowhere and it wakes you up. To be thunderstruck is to suddenly wake up to the moment. You understand that? You see what I'm saying? That's the challenge of astonishment. How do we wake up to the moment when we bring so much baggage to the moment? How do we wake up to it? Resurrection is literally about rising to the moment with something connective. We talk about the hidden wholeness, but what I want to suggest to you is maybe an easier way for you to, rem to remember this is to think about the sacred wholeness that is in all things. The wholeness that is God, whatever you call it, mystery, if you call it sacredness or, or holiness. It is, at the, it is the thing that connects everything. It is the heart, the life, the love that creates and animates everything. That wholeness is often hidden from us. How do we get there? Throw up these, I, I used these quotes earlier, and I think they speak to something. I told a story about one of my grandkids when we were planting seeds some time back. We were planting seeds, and as the seeds were being planted in there, my, my, one of my granddaughters looked up at me, and she said, Daddo, that's my nickname, it's Irish, and it means granddad in, Ir in Irish and Gaelic, Daddo. She says, Daddo, do you think this seed gets scared? being buried? And I thought, well, that's a really profound question. <laughs> I didn't really know at first. And I, and I thought to myself, she could have just as been, easily been asking me, Dado, do you get scared when you're buried and overwhelmed? I think any one of us probably could answer, there has been a number of times in the last year, in the last two years, in the last week, in the last month, on a daily basis where we feel a little bit anxious because of where we are, a little overwhelmed by the moment. I don't want to deal with that. I can't believe I've got to deal with this right now. 
It's easy to feel buried. And then she said, then she said, looking over at a little flower that was already coming up, she says, wait a minute. She said, I think this flower is probably telling the one underneath the dirt not to worry because things are going to be okay. Wow. There's an old Talmud saying in the Hebrew tradition that says, there's an angel over everything. There's an angel over every blade of grass that's bending over low and whispering, grow, grow. Life is inviting us into this place of astonishment, but it's hard for us to get there because of all the stuff. Um, Mark Nepo had this great, book, uh, this great book he called The Exquisite Risk. I don't know if you, any of you read Mark Nepo. He's one of my favorite writers. He wrote, wrote a book called The Exquisite Risk. And what he was talking about was the challenge of life. It's beautiful and it's really risky, right? It's amazing and it's rich. And the possibilities for redemption, as you were sharing in this wonderful piece that you wrote again, the possibilities for redemption in all of our moments. You know, redemption means to bring that sense of wellness to the moment, to bring that sense of wholeness. How do we do that? The possibilities are there in all our moments. He says, if peace comes from seeing things whole, then memory stems from a loss of perspective. Memory stems from a loss of perspective. Some years ago, I'll give you a quick illustration before I'm gonna give you a, a four-step process. How to experience the resurrection. <laughs> I was standing in front of a group of students, actually just about to stand up and to do a storytelling performance. I'd been invited to this school. It was one of these alternative schools, one of these at-risk alternative schools where kids who were truant or for any number of reasons were sent to that school. It was a high school. Now, I was terrified before I got there because I'd been used to performing for junior high, fifth graders, sixth graders, telling stories, having the best time, playing ukulele, singing folk songs. And I was standing in front of this anxious, angry, older, alternative crowd. And the principal got up to introduce me and said, all right, I want every one of you to behave. I want you to pipe down, keep your mouth shut. Now listen, this man here, I don't know anything about him. And he may have some really good stuff to say, but you might miss it if you're talking. Now if you're gonna be in any trouble at all, then I just, in fact, if you don't wanna be here, then I'd like for you to just go on and get up and leave right now before we get started. One third of the auditorium got up and left. And then he said, all right, settle down then. Welcome, Mr. McDermott. <laughs> now, if I wasn't scared before, <laughs> I was terrified. I was humiliated before I even got started. Because knowing that situation, knowing my background and how different it was, I already knew I had nothing to offer this moment and couldn't relate to any of them. But here's the problem. I really didn't know what I didn't know. And that's always the case in all of our moments. Now, I didn't know about the empty tomb. I mean, I knew about it, but I didn't think that that's what I was being invited into right now and right in that space. But I thought to myself, just take a deep breath, stand in front of them, 
And then I just began to say some things that came to mind, largely because the thing I'd planned to say would have fallen and they might have thrown things at me. And so I stood there silently and I said, awkward, terrified, pissed off and angry. And as I said that, I started noticing a couple of heads nodding. Feeling alone right now. I get a little teared up just thinking about it. As I began to just say words I was feeling, I began to realize I'm saying words they're feeling too. And as I began to share words they were feeling, they began to see what I was feeling, and you see we began to open up this empty space between us. And I didn't have anything to say, but I knew they were hurting. I knew they suffered in their realities. I knew that my moment here was also one of vulnerability. And so I simply said, who's angry? And it was, it was kind of a rhetorical question. And five hands went up. And I said, what are you angry about? And they started telling me all sorts of things about what they were dealing with. And then I asked a couple of others, and they said what they were dealing with. And after a few of them had said what they were dealing with and the struggles they were having in their communities, I said, you know, there was a story, a parable that I heard a rabbi once tell, his, tell a young student who asked him what the difference between heaven and hell was. And I said to these kids, I said, well, the rabbi told that student, this is what hell looks like. If you go to hell, there's a huge table and people are seated around the table and there's all sorts of delicious foods and all sorts of possibilities right there on the table in front of them, all sorts of life possibilities, but they can't reach it because their arms are locked at the elbows. So every time they try to feed themselves, it's awkward, it's clumsy, they make a huge mess and it just makes them angry. It seems impossible to get to what they need. You see what I was doing? And so I said, and even as I said that, it was, it was, it was really something because they knew what I was talking about. And so I said, but if you go to heaven, the boy said, the student said, but what is, if that's what hell looks, it's terrible. He said, well, that's because they're trying to feed themselves. That's what happens in hell. He said, well, then what's heaven like? And so the, the rabbi said, well, close your eyes and imagine this. Big table, huge table, people seated all around the table. Delicious foods and all sorts of possibilities of life right there before them. He said, well, this sounds like the same place. And the rabbi said, no, 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 look more closely. And as he did, the rabbi said, what they're doing is they're reaching across and feeding each other. They knew what I was talking about. And I was in this place of vulnerable acceptance. And we shared stories back and forth. And I said, I don't have the answers but I know you have the answers among yourselves. I know you can live out this possibility of feeding one another, of helping one another. And that's a start. So here's what I want to do. I want to think with you very quickly about these four steps, these four very quick steps of how you can rise to the occasion, as you might say. When we encounter moments 
that are difficult, whether it's online, whether it's in the grocery store, whether it's a car pulls in front of you, whether it's a political story you're seeing on the news, whether it's anxiety because you're about to do something that you really have no idea what you've stepped into. When we find ourselves in these places, what do we do? We react. We resist. But what if instead, what if instead we relaxed? What if instead we took a deep breath and we just let it be for a moment? What if instead if we just put our hand to our heart? Try it. How many times do you put your hand to your heart and think, oh my God, I'm alive. So are you. So are all of us. We're all connected with this beautiful possibility of life. Take a deep breath, relax, pause for a minute. Don't go into there without, with this anxiety. So if you start reacting, catch yourself, take a deep breath, relax, ground yourself, feel your heart. Oh yeah, it's pounding. I'm a little anxious right now. That's all right. It's okay. It's okay. You've all been there. We've been there. Then we go to the next, I. Instead of insisting, and I'm going to add the word invocating, because what I talked about earlier is how we come into spaces with our minds made up, with the answers to whatever we think is the issue, that's invocating. We are literally invoking our God. If you want to call it idolatry, you can. We're literally invoking our idea of what's right in this moment. Instead of insisting and invoking, what if we inquire? What if we ask questions after we take a break, we relax and we start to go, all right, what is this anxiety all about? What's really happening here? What's really possible? What am I missing? And then you could even ask questions of the others. How are you doing? What are, what, tell me more about that thing you just said. Oh, it sounds, you know, that may be de, it may be declarative. Maybe they're invoking, maybe they're insisting, but that's all right. You're in a place of calm. You're in connection with your heart. They're not. They just forgot, Right? They've just forgotten it. So ask them some questions, see if they can get there. Start taking an interest. What's it cost? Nothing. You can let go of anything you want to, but you can't let go of the moment that invites you to connect. Next thing. Instead of silencing or just going for status quo, and now we're getting kind of dangerous because that's what we tend to do is find status quo, create spaciousness. Create space. Allowing space is allowing for us to be present to what else is there that we don't know, and that's hard. But if we can create space, if we can relax, and if we can start asking questions and inquire, and then begin to sense what else is here that we don't know, we just don't know. What else is here? What's the old saying? Everyone be gentle and kind because everyone is carrying some burden. Everyone is dealing with some conflict that we're not aware of. Everyone. Allow that space. And then finally, instead of escaping the moment, invite, I'm sorry, enjoy. Instead of escaping and explaining the moment, enjoy the moment. Now here's the cue, here's the, the interesting thing before we wrap up and let the band come back and sing for us. Here's the interesting thing. We cannot enjoy until we do these other things. Because you know what? Salvation isn't meant for you to go off and be in your own little corner feel good about yourself and have a ticket. Salvation is for us to invite others into a space of astonishment and compassion and justice. And how do we do that? 
We bring that space to that moment. That's literally what it means to enjoy. It's to bring joy to the moment. And we do that by relaxing, by asking questions, by creating space. And then I guarantee what happens are what some people say only happen every now and then called God moments. <laughs> but they're waiting to happen in every single moment that we're waiting to be in that empty tomb, to be in that space of invitation, and then just to wait. It will come alive. Life is filled with beauty and risk. I think this is my last quote here. Life is filled with beauty, exquisite beauty and risk. The risk is entrusting that the vision of the divine wholeness that is hidden in all things and living with a wide enough perspective of grace and humility so that we too might be astonished in even the most unlikely of moments where the principal has said, you're going to fail before you get started. And the kids, he's basically said, you're going to hate them anyway. <laughs> Nobody knew there was a wholeness already there hidden and waiting to be tapped. Amen.